we're doing the notebooks, um, we're doing the notebooks not for religious duty and practice, but we are performing habits, we're building habits, we're doing things to create space, intentional space for God to be able to work and live and move and breathe in our day-to-day life. It's easy for us to just come to church on a Sunday and then forget everything we talked about uh, on Sunday over the course of the next week and do the whole week in our own strength and our own ability with our own pride and our own ego driving everything and never empty ourselves of all of that where God wants us to empty ourselves and then live out of his power and his strength in our day-to-day lives. So, so the notebooks and the journal and the readings and the devotionals are not all things that we do to accomplish the task of doing them. They are all aimed at building our relationship with God and giving God the room to work and move and change and transform our lives every single day. All right, so uh, that's, that's why we're doing it and that's why we're getting to, to the habit of it. I, I know the second week oftentimes is kind of a lot harder than the first week. I really enjoyed the second week. I'm kind of getting more out of it the second week than I did the first week and um, writing more and thinking more and uh, meditating more and all that stuff. So I hope you're starting to get maybe a little bit more out of it as well. Now, grace and truth. Grace and truth is who Jesus was. By the way, um, the way I'm structuring our teaching is our Sunday sermon is, is really kind of the, the biblical and theological framework or foundation for the whole rest of the week. And we don't really get into the applicational, transformational stuff until Monday through Friday, especially towards the end of the week. So today we're going to cover a lot of biblical, theological, foundational teaching on the ideas of grace and truth and Jesus being full of grace and truth. And we'll cover just a tiny little bit of application, but the real meat of the application happens Monday through Friday, and that's why we're doing the Overflow podcast and posting the devotionals every day and all of that stuff. So we're actually starting to apply this into our day-to-day lives. Um, but it might feel like it's just a lot of content on Sunday if you're missing the rest of the stuff on the, uh, throughout the week. So you can subscribe to that podcast on Spotify and on iTunes and just look for the 6-8 Church podcast and you'll see our logo and subscribe to that and then they'll download to your phone every single day automatically and I have it to be able to. I listen to them even though I record them and it's myself talking. I still listen to them every day. And it's not because I'm vain, it's because I want to be reminded of the content. So, uh, so I would love uh, for you to join me in that. So grace and truth is who Jesus was. John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh That word for word is logos or logos. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. Jesus came from the father, which is what we spent most of last week and even the week before talking about how he came from the Father and did what the Father did. But he came from the Father full of grace and truth, not 50-50, not half grace and half truth. 
It's not like there was half of him that was grace and half of him was truth, but he was fully, completely, 100% grace and 100% truth. This is what, what we call the incarnation, right? That Jesus was, was the word of the Father made flesh. And just like God has spoken everything into existence, through his speech, the world has become. Through his speech, humanity became a thing. Jesus became the embodiment or the incarnation of the Father. And when that person, when that essence of the Father put on flesh became a living being, that person was 100% grace and 100% truth. In Christian circles, though, it seems like you're either in the grace camp or you're in the truth camp. There are those people and denominations who seem to rest heavily and focus heavily on the truth, which I would, I would say is actually narrowly defined simply as knowledge. And then there are those camps who focus entirely or heavily on grace, which I would say is narrowly defined as salvation, neither of them really getting the whole picture. But that wasn't ever God's intention. He wanted us, his church, to be full of grace and full of truth. But before we get into that, the definitions which we're going to look at here in just a second, I want to just kind of build out this concept a little bit more. Grace and truth were something Jesus was. Grace and truth made Jesus Jesus. He was the incarnation, the embodiment of grace and truth, which was the embodiment of the Father. So he didn't just know the truth. He didn't just know the right things to think and the right information and the right knowledge. He was the truth. Right? So he didn't just know stuff. He was everything that he knew, and it's even more than that. At the same time, he didn't just practice and give grace. He didn't just practice the habit of grace or the character trait of grace. He was grace. And I think this is really important to understand the difference because we tend to think of truth primarily and limited to knowledge about God. And our goal then is to accumulate as much knowledge as we possibly can. And then we think of grace as this character trait that we have to train ourselves to practice. And that's not the point at all. These are not things that we, that we work to try to accumulate. These are actually things we become. We're supposed to become grace and truth. So grace or truth are who we are to become in Christ. The work of Christ on the cross was not to make us more moral people. It was not so that we could just have better morals and, and just kind of live, live, live better lives, good people, doing good things. See, God doesn't actually want you to be a gracious person. I think that's missing the point entirely. If we think, well, God just wants me to be a gracious person, well, we've missed the point that actually God wants us to become grace. And then graciousness is just something that you exhibit because you are grace. At the same time, God doesn't want you to memorize trivia about himself. He wants you to become truth. Or more accurately, I would say, to become true. 
God wants you to be true, to be real, to have your insides match your outsides and vice versa, to have your actions match your motives. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And that, that word realized is a really important word in that verse. So Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. This word full is important for us because we're talking about overflow and being filled up and filled to overflowing. And that idea is right here in, in who Jesus was. So Jesus came from the, from the Father full, which means filled up as opposed to empty. But that's not the only way you can use this word. It's not the only understanding. It means complete, lacking nothing, perfect. So when Jesus is full of grace and truth, he's complete and perfect in grace and truth. When it's talking about a surface, when you're talking about a surface being full, you'd say full would mean it's covered in every single part. And when you're talking about the soul, it means it's thoroughly permeated with. So Jesus' soul was thoroughly permeated all the way through everything with grace and truth. So Jesus came from the Father perfect in grace and truth, covered in every way, thoroughly permeated, lacking nothing, full of grace and truth. So John 1.16 where it says, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. That means from his fullness, his completeness, his perfection, his saturation, his permeated nature of grace and truth, we receive then out of that fullness grace upon grace. So you might say, out of the overflow of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. Jim was talking earlier this week, layer upon layer of grace. Every time you peel back one layer of grace, it only reveals yet another and another and another. And he used the illustration of an onion, but I refuse to denigrate grace with the idea of an onion. So just think of layers of soil. Every time you dig back a layer of soil, there's another layer underneath and another layer underneath and another layer underneath. The deeper into grace you go, the more grace you see. Jesus' fountain of grace is a spring of life welling up within us from his eternal sources. Grace and truth. But there's a problem. Can anybody think of a single time where Jesus talked or taught about grace? Right, so studying for this, preparing for today, it's so much easier when you can just go right to Jesus' teaching and his words himself, and when he says, this is what this is, then you know this is what that is. But Jesus never taught about grace. At least he never gave an explicit teaching on grace. The word grace appears three times in John Chapter 1, and that's it for the whole gospel. 
The same word or root word used for grace is used by Jesus twice in Luke chapter 6, verse 32 through 34 and 179. But he's not talking about grace as unmerited favor. He's talking of thanks and credit. But then somehow, grace becomes this cornerstone teaching after Jesus ascended back into heaven. The word grace is used 148 times in the New Testament. 11 of of those times are in John and Luke. So 137 times from Acts through Revelation is the word grace. So I would think, you know, it's safe to say that grace is a major emphasis, a major teaching of the New Testament, but Jesus never mentioned it, never gave a sermon on the seven principles of grace. He told some parables that I think illustrate grace, and we can, we're going to study some of those this coming week, but other than that, nothing. And while it's not as extreme, Jesus also didn't spend a whole lot of time teaching about truth. Truth seems to be a significant part of Jesus' teaching in John. Moving that down a little bit. But it's not mentioned by Jesus in the other Gospels. Now, John was closer to Jesus than the other disciples, so I would believe that some of his teachings... Uh, that, that he shared would be some that John observed in more intimate settings with the Pharisees and teachers of the law that the other disciples weren't privy to. So, so he would know some things or have heard some things that probably the other disciples didn't know because he was Jesus' closest disciple, the one that was Jesus' beloved. So we do get some teaching in John chapter 8 on truth. But again, truth is mentioned in the New Testament 98 times, 27 in the Gospels, the other 71 after Jesus left. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that Jesus never taught about grace, but it's the cornerstone of our faith? I had to wrestle with that pretty hard this week. And here's... here's Here's my hypothesis. Here's what I think. I think the reason Jesus never taught about grace was because it's something he was. I think it's because he was grace that he didn't teach on grace. He exemplified or exhibited grace. He lived it out. Think about it with me for a second. So I'm a Lindner. My name is David Lindner. It's my family name. In fact, there's probably a lot about me as a person that is because I'm a Lindner. For example, I come from a long line of tempers, hot tempers. I have a hot temper too. And I can see that temper has been genetically passed on to some of my kids. I won't give any names. But I looked like my dad, who was a Lindner. And he looked like his Lindner dad. 
And so I'm a Lindner, right? That's just that's something that I am. You can see that in what I look like. You can see as you look at me and you look at my dad standing next to me and you get a picture of his dad, put it next to him, and you can see we look like Lindners. There is a way you look as a Lindner. Now, as a father, I hardly ever teach my kids what it means to be a Lindner. And I might be failing as a dad, but uh, at the same time, when we're with friends or our extended family, even our close-knit Lindner family, we don't spend a lot of time talking about being a Lindner. There are occasions and smaller circles with smaller groups, but not as the whole family, we, don't, we just don't talk about being a Lindner. And now with the plethora of words that I've written in my life, which you know there are a lot of them, I haven't spent hardly any time talking about being a Lindner. Because it's just who I am, right? I just, I am a Lindner. Why would I spend a lot of time talking about being David Lindner? And I think when you are something, when it's just who you are, you just are it. You don't necessarily do a lot of talking about it. You just are it. You be it. It comes out in who you are and everything in your day-to-day life. And I, I would argue that the same is true of Jesus, that he was grace. He was the embodiment, the incarnation, the personification of grace and truth. And if Jesus had a full name like we have, it might have been Jesus, grace, truth. Jesus was grace. He, he was truth. Just like I'm a lender, Jesus would say, I am grace and I am truth. I am. We're going to get into that in just a minute. It just so happens that the am that Jesus is, is. Who Jesus is, is am. Is this making sense? There are some things that we just are that we don't really explain about ourselves. And I think this is what Jesus was. He just, he was grace. And just like for us, it might be natural to be these things we've been talking about, We don't have to stop and explain that we are that way. We just are that way. It was the same thing for Jesus. He didn't have to stop and explain that he was grace. He just was grace. That's who he was. So uh, let's dig into this word a little bit. What is grace? The same way with truth, by the way. He didn't have to explain that he was truth. He made more truth statements than he did grace statements. But he didn't have to explain it. He just was truth. So let's define our terms so that we understand. I didn't define both terms last week, and I I learned from that mistake. So we're going to define both grace and truth. What is grace? Uh, Jim's going to talk about there's a similarity here between uh, the concept that he's going to be teaching on gentleness and what we're talking about with grace. But the Hebrew word for grace is chen, C-H-E-N, and it means to stoop down. To stoop down. It has... The idea of doing a condescending favor. A condescending favor. It's a kindness shown by a superior to an inferior. And there is no obligation on the part of the superior to show this kindness. That's from the book Grace uh, by Norman H. Snaith. S-N-A-I-T-H. A theological word book of the Bible. Um, 
It's kindness shown by a superior to an inferior where there is no obligation on the part of the superior to show this kindness. So it's not just favor, though. It's also charm and elegance and adornment. We'll get into that. So Jesus' very appearance on the earth was grace. I think it's hard for us to imagine because, like, you could see anger on us. You could see grace on Jesus. So if grace is stooping down, then a superior kindness, showing kindness to an inferior with no obligation to do so, that is the very essence of Jesus becoming man, becoming flesh, stooping down. God putting on flesh was an act of grace. God didn't have to do that. It was not required of God to put on flesh. It was not required of God to heal and to feed thousands and and to resurrect the dead. There was nowhere that that was required. There was no one that demanded God to do that, and so he abided. It was not a requirement. At the same time, it was not required of God to make disciples and to equip people with the tools to live his kind of life, to become him in likeness, like grace and truth. At the same time, it was not required of God to stand in our place as our sin representative and die the death that we deserve to die. And so, how do we normally define grace? There's a two-word definition that most of us usually go to, and it's a good one. Unmerited favor. So that's a great, accurate definition of grace. It's unmerited favor. It's favor that God is giving to us without us earning it, right? But I think there's more to it than that. From his conception to his ascension, Jesus was the embodiment of unmerited favor, the visible expression of God's grace. He was superior, stooping down to give us favor, but but the stooping down was in no way condescending. In fact, I would say it was quite humble. He was gracious in his grace. Jesus was gracious in his grace. It wasn't an obligatory, unmerited favor that Jesus did for us, the kind where you know that the person who is doing it is doing it out of compulsion because he has to. But if he was given the choice, he'd rather not do it. This was generous in his grace. Abundance. He was giving abundance out of his abundant grace. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey said, Grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. John Stott defines grace this way. It's grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Michael Horton writes, In grace, God gives nothing less than himself. Grace, then, is not a third thing, or a substance mediating between God and sinners, but is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. So grace is not some other thing. It is Jesus. It is God. That is who he is. Jesus is grace. God is grace. So grace is receiving favor when we have earned punishment. Grace is receiving the gift of resurrection life when we deserve a death sentence. Grace is receiving blessing when our works have earned us condemnation. Grace is getting God. At the same time, grace is also entirely in God's hands. It is not through any work that we do that we're able to receive grace. It's very important that we understand it. 
It's not through any work that we do that we're able to receive grace. It is God's to give because grace is God and he is free to give of himself whenever he pleases. In giving grace, God is giving us himself. And we contribute absolutely nothing to God's grace. It's unmerited. It's unearned. We don't receive more of it for living better lives. And we don't receive less of it when we fail. I've even heard some say that our contribution, our contribution to grace is sin, but I, I can't see how that could possibly be true because that makes sin or grace dependent on our sinning. If our contribution to grace is sin, then there would be no grace at all if we didn't sin. But grace is who God is, and so it cannot be dependent on our sinning or not sinning. So neither our contribution of works or sin has any bearing on God's gift of grace. It's just who he is. But you say, well, what about belief? Don't we have to believe to get God's grace? Isn't that something that we do? Absolutely. Belief is something we do. When you believe in something, you reorient your entire life around it, right? That's how we've talked about belief. You believe in something in such a way that you reorient your entire life around it. But belief isn't something we do to earn grace. We believe in God and God is grace. And we reorient our entire lives around grace and grace through belief because of who God is. So our belief isn't a work we perform to earn grace. Our belief is in grace itself because our belief is in God who is grace. So in your own words, just for a second, if you will, Without using that, that two-word definition of unmerited favor, how would you define grace? Give us your words, your definition of grace. All right, now to my favorite, truth. You know where this is going already. <clears throat> but I probably haven't said it 25 times yet, so we're, we still got some more work to do. Uh, our, our basic understanding of truth is this is so, or that which corresponds with reality, right? This is a table. We know this is a table because we call this a table. If I say this is a couch, you know that is not a true statement because this cannot be a couch and a table. It is either a table or a couch. So if I say this is a table, that is true because it corresponds with reality. If I say this is a couch, that is false because it does not correspond with reality. So truth then is this is so, or it corresponds with reality. Now I'm gonna get on my soapbox for just a minute and I just ask you to bear with me because I have to go there when we're talking about truth. Truth has been the recipient of a full-on assault in the Western culture for several generations now. And if you know me, you know it's one of my pet peeves when people talk about my truth. My truth, my truth my truth. So this is, what, this is how that word, that, that phrase gets used. You think you have the right to create an entirely separate system of right and wrong, right? That, that's, that's what that idea is. 
which when you think about it, this is actually what the fall is at work. This is how the fall is being lived out in our lives. The fact that we think we can decide what right and wrong is for ourselves, we can decide what's good and evil, is actually evidence of the fact that we shouldn't be deciding for ourselves what right and wrong is because it ruined everything in the first place. And I know this is, this is incredibly unpopular to say this, and it's really popular right now to talk about the idea of my truth, and we've got to embrace. you just got to embrace your truth. you just got to go and be you. But it's just not true. And just because something is popular doesn't make it right. So let me just, let me just hop on my soapbox for one second. Truth is not subject to change. Ever, Period. Truth does not ever change. Truth is true in all situations, in all relationships, in all cultures, and in every generation across the span of all of time. Truth is true always. It does not, it does not ever change. There was not a truth for our parents' generation and then a different one for ours. That just is not reality. There was not a truth for Jesus and then a separate truth for the Pope. Truth is always true. It's overarching, and it's the foundation of everything. God is truth. Likewise, it is true that God cannot change. So if God cannot change, neither can truth change, because God is truth, and God cannot change, so truth cannot change. And there is no such thing as what's true for me. Frank Peretti said it in a talk years ago. What's true for you may not be true for me. What's true for me may, may not be true for you. And if that's actually the case, then I get to make decisions based on what I think is true for me, and you have to live with the consequences no matter how they affect you. I can decide that in my reality you are unnecessary, therefore you must be destroyed. And if that's hard to understand, it doesn't make any sense, I'm sorry. There's no correlation to actual reality. You understand that, but it's, it's nonsensical. But it doesn't matter because that's just my truth and that's just what's right for me. Sorry you had to die. That sucks for you. <laughs> nope, probably not. My truth. I understand where people are coming from and I actually, ironically, I think there is some truth in that statement, my truth. Let me explain. My truth is basically saying, this is something I believe deeply about myself. When we say that phrase, this is just, that's just my truth, what we're saying is this is something I believe deeply about myself. So there is a partial way that that is a true statement to say my truth. But the problem is, is that a lot of these my truth statements even though they're things that we believe about ourselves, they stem down to the very heart of who we are in a story that is a lie that we have believed and embraced. And so we say this is just my truth, but the truth of the matter is we've embraced a lie that we've tried to make true. We've lived down into the deception and become that very thing. So there is a sense where it does correspond with reality, but we need to actually dig into the word truth a little bit to understand it. Here's our definition for the word truth. It's a Greek word that we refer to. It's called aletheia. Aletheia. 
It's made up of two words. A, as in alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It also can represent Christ, which I think is really interesting in this connotation. But when you add it to a word as a prefix, it means un or not. And the word lanthano means to hide or be hidden, secret, unaware, without knowing. So, in its most basic form, truth then means unhidden. Truth means unhidden, revealed, not secret. So you might say, exposed. Now, I don't know how that's hitting you, but when I was digging into that this week, I was like, whoa, that's insane. Like my mind just blew up a little bit. Unhidden. Truth means to unhide. Something is unhidden, exposed, revealed. This, by the way, is why Truth cannot be based on my truth or relative. Because once the lie is exposed, when the lie is exposed, the lie is out and the light is shining on it. The lie is no longer a secret. It loses all of its power. The strength of that falls away. And now we are just left with reality. When we believe a lie, we are unaware without knowing the truth or without revelation. So when we believe a lie, we're unaware without knowing the truth or without revelation. Truth then is to become aware, to become knowing. So when the lie is exposed for all its contradictions, then it doesn't hold up to reality. So you cannot have a my truth because when it's exposed, it doesn't hold up to the reality of how things work. So this will make sense more later when we talk about the example of Jesus, especially as we go throughout the rest of this week uh, in, the, in the devotionals. But just kind of let that saturate for a minute. It's unhidden. Truth means unhidden, exposed, revealed. Revealed. So when Jesus, when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, he is the revealed truth. He is life. His life then becomes the revelation of truth or what is true. His life becomes the revelation, the exposing of what reality really is. So then Jesus is what will correspond with the reality of the Father because he's the embodiment, the incarnation of the Father. So when we look at Jesus, we're looking at the reality of the Father, that, that which corresponds to what is real. So Jesus is real. He is. So when he's talking about he is, it's just he's true. He is. He is so. He is true. He is revealed. Who he is corresponds to the realest reality that has ever been. There has never been, nor will there ever be, anything more real or revealed than Jesus. This, I think, is at least a part of the reason that God's name for himself is I am. So in other words, when God says 
he is I am, he's saying he is true. He is that which corresponds with reality. When it comes to being real, there is nothing more is or am than God. He just is. Has anyone uh, heard that, I, that understanding of truth as being revelation or revealed or unhidden before? This is kind of new for me. Yeah, so Im imagine this idea came to mind when we were talking. Imagine yourself blindfolded and somebody leads you into a completely dark room. No light whatsoever in this dark room. You're blindfolded. You have no, no point of reference, no anything in this room. You take the blindfold off. Everything's completely dark, pitch black. You can open your eyes, but you still have no idea what's around you. It's not until somebody turns on the light and you can actually see then what is in the room. Yeah, that's good. We're almost, we're, we're kind of approaching time limit here. So I just want to, I want to plow through the rest with this, the combination of grace and truth. You cannot have in the kingdom and kingdom living, kingdom living, and kingdom thinking, you cannot have grace without truth or truth without grace. So the more than that we understand Jesus and God the Father, I think the more that we should come to the conclusion that grace and truth are completely inseparable parts of a whole. For water to be water, it requires a combination of hydrogen and oxygen, right? This bottle used to be full. It's half full now, so this isn't an exact illustration. But all of the water in this bottle is 100% Hydrogen and 100% oxygen, right? Every molecule of water in this bottle is 100% is of both. Does that make sense? Now you're going to get all scientific. Well, it's two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, and you can separate it out. Yeah, but every molecule of water, for water to be water, it has to be hydrogen and oxygen. Water does not exist when it's separate. It's only when they're combined together that you have water. Every molecule of water needs both. Without truth, grace becomes something different. Without grace, truth becomes something different. So let's look at those really quickly. Without truth, grace will become a license to sin where you can just do whatever you want. At least that's how we see it played out in the New Testament and the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom, or birth mom, you don't really know. And you're proud. That's what he says, and you're proud about it. This is what grace without truth does. You, you are proud, you brag about the sin that you live in because you're just all grace, it's all grace, it's all grace. I'm under the grace, I'm under grace, I'm under grace, I'm under grace. Don't need to worry about anything in my life because I've got grace. Paul says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? In Corinth, they were surrounded by a hyper-sexualized culture that, is, that, I, that I think is probably akin to our culture today. 
And the church had taken on many of the sinful, rebellious practices of the culture around them, and they had begun to brag and boast about being able to do them and remain in the church. Remain in the church. Remain in Christ. They had taken grace to the extreme to mean that they were allowed to do absolutely anything they wanted, and they would be forgiven for it, The problem was that they were remaining, we talked about a couple weeks ago, remaining or abiding or dwelling, those words should ring a bell, John chapter 15, they were were abiding in sin instead of in Christ. So if the thing that you're abiding in is sin, but somehow you think because of grace you're equally capable of abiding in Christ, what we talked about last week, we would say, uh, no, that's not true. You're probably abiding in a truthless grace. Now let's look at truth. Without grace, truth becomes something different. Without grace, truth just seems to become condemnation and judgment. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When you remove grace from truth, you end up with churches, churches like Westboro Baptist. You cannot call them a church, I don't think. At least you cannot call them a church and be truthful in that statement. But truth without grace, I think, is all over the church today. It's this... I'm right about my understanding of this, and you're wrong, so we're going to judge you and condemn you based on your version of the truth, or based on our version of the truth. I'm right, you're wrong, my truth is right, which is ironic when they think about it, but my truth is right, and I'm going to condemn you, because what they don't have is actual truth, because it's devoid of grace. So if, you, if your truth leads you to condemnation and to judgment and, and to driving down the people around you for their shortcomings, then you have a graceless truth. It's looking at others through the lens of God's perfection and condemning anyone who doesn't live up to its standards while at the same time ignoring all of our failings and all of our shortcomings of the one who's looking back at us in the mirror. If, you, if we cannot measure up to the standard that we're using to condemn others, then we're abiding in a graceless truth. You cannot have truth without grace or grace without truth. At the same time, grace does not deny the truth. Contrary to popular belief, I am not a confrontational person. I dislike conflict, and I dislike confrontation as much as anyone else in the room. Except for Josh, maybe. (laughs) I don't like making people feel bad. I don't like the awkward moments before or after a confrontation. And depending on how the person takes it, I don't like the potential weirdness for all of the time that follows. But I've also recognized something. We don't deal with problems anymore. 
We try to make things right by beating around the bush. So we have long, awkward, uncomfortable conversations, kind of about something, but never really actually about the thing and bring the problem to light. Desiring to be gracious people, we have then missed an entire half of the, con- of the, of the equation. We think that to be gracious means we just let people do their thing, keep making the same mistakes, keep hurting us in the same way over and over again without ever talking about the truth of what's going on. Well, I just want to show them the love of Jesus, we'll say. And when I hear that, I want to ask, do you know Jesus? Because grace is not a glossing over of the wrongs that have been done. That is not what grace is. At least not the way Jesus lived it out. If we're looking at the life of Jesus to figure out what grace means, we've got to look at what he did. And I cannot think of a single example in all of Jesus' life and ministry where he ever once glossed over an issue in order to be gracious and loving. Not one single time. Why? Why? Why would Jesus not do that? Because it's actually not loving to skip the truth so you can appear to be gracious. It's the opposite of love. Grace sees truth as an indispensable partner and vice versa. And truth, at least in God's kingdom, cannot imagine existing without grace. At the same time, truth does not circumvent grace. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where they just dumped everything on, just unloaded a mountain of garbage on you, either about you or about someone else, and they just they said, oh, I, just, I had to get that off my chest. Nothing in those conversations exhibits grace, unmerited favor for you or the person at the bottom of the heap. It's just completely selfish. They had to say it so they could feel better about themselves, right? I had to get it off my chest so I could relax about it. Regardless of the offense, regardless of the offense, there should never be a time when we destroy another person so we can feel better about ourselves. That's truth circumventing grace. By the way, if someone is unloading unloading on you about someone else, that should be the first clue that this person doesn't get grace and truth. Because it's neither gracious nor truthful to upend an absent party because you want to justify yourself. It's neither gracious nor truthful truthful to upend an absent party because you want to justify yourself. If only half of the story, if only half of the relationship is present, that's only half of what's going on. That means there's an entirely separate side to the story that isn't being represented. So not only is what's being shared not truthful because only half of the story is exposed and the other half of the story is hidden, it's actually not gracious because the absentee is being judged and condemned. And so this this is why I firmly believe this is why Paul comes down so hard on gossip in the church. He treats it just, just like any of the other extravagant sins. Because it's vile and repulsive. It's not just harmless chatter. 
It's actually an injustice that contradicts the very nature of God himself. So how do we talk about others when they're not present? We need to be careful, if not better, about that. So I think it's an error to separate grace and truth. Because in God's eyes, they're two 100% parts of one whole. Two 100% parts of one whole. Paired together, it's not only who Jesus was, but a key aspect to our growth and transformation in Christ. Now what do we do with this? We're going to wrap up now. I know I said that a minute ago, but pastors don't always tell the truth. So love, I think, then, is the embodiment, like Elaine said, agape love, unconditional love, is the embodiment of grace and truth. I hope to see as we go through this series, all of these things build on one another. Jesus' pure love was embodied in him and his person as grace and truth. Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, and then 8 through 16. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Whose example? God's example. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the example we walk in is God's example, and that's Jesus Christ giving himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice. And then in verse 8 it says, For we were, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. What do we do with this? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. When we walk in love, when we are clothed in love, the result is a person of grace and truth. You're someone who has put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and you continue to do so. God's truth has exposed those fruitless deeds and covered them now in grace. Once exposed, we have nothing to hide or anything to hide behind. We are naked but not ashamed. We are fully known but not repulsive. So now we clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, and most importantly, love. And it's not just ourselves, how we see ourselves, but it's also in our one another's. 
when God's light exposes the hidden deeds of our hearts and we see one another with nothing to hide and we fully know one another, we must walk in the way of love. When together we are exposed and vulnerable, we see one another through that royal robe of God's love, which is comprised of grace and truth. Unhidden, unmerited favor poured out in abundance. To be a person of gracious truth and truthful grace means I walk in the way of love. Unconditional, sacrificial, unearned, freely given love. So over the course of this week, we're going to dig into that a little bit more and actually start to look at what it looks like to put that into practice in our lives. And so I invite you to participate in those devotionals over the course of this week where we get into more of Jesus' teaching, his parables, and his life, and all of that as it applies to grace and truth. Let's stand together and move into our time of worship. It's easy, Father, to be thankful for grace. Teach us to be thankful for truth. Help us to be people of unconditional love, clothed in love, everything in our lives bound together, held together by unconditional love, love that is not earned, it is freely given. I pray, Father, as your body, as your church joined together here at 6-8, that you would just continue to reveal to us, to unhide to us, to expose to us, to show us what it means to be this kind of people, to show us what it means to be set apart in this way, to be chosen as your holy people, righteous, pure, blameless, for your higher purposes and your kingdom calling. I pray, Father, help us to understand more and more, not only with our minds, but with our hearts, what it is to be fully grace and fully truth. And our interactions with one another help us to be fully grace and fully truth. And as we interact with believers outside the church and outside of this body, help us to show them fully grace and fully truth. In Jesus' name, amen.